Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode is sponsored by Ascot Group. Ascot Group is a preeminent speciality insurance and reinsurance group with a record of underwriting excellence and superior claims service. Founded in 2001, the company provides a broad range of underwriting solutions to customers worldwide through its platforms in London, Bermuda and the United States. Ascot Group are proud to support Headstrong, which focuses on the psychological well-being challenges that arise from professional sport. Check Ascot Group out at ascotgroup.com. Cool. Do you want me to clap? Loud clap. Cracking. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on Headstrong. Pleasure. Good to see you. And you? Um, you've retired now, and now you're over here, having spent some time on the West Coast mm-hmm. in America. What's that transition been like in the joyful British weather? Um, you know what, like, America was really good for me. Um, just mentally having a little bit of a break from rugby in England, the Southwest London in particular, where I've kind of lived my whole life. So to go over there where not much is known about rugby, it was very much about the lifestyle. Like the rugby's very much got a a bit of a way to go, um, but I was five minutes from the beach and the ocean's always been a massive escape for me mentally. Just to be able to go and sit down there instead of sitting in the ice bath for 10 minutes, you're sitting down on the beach, your little one's playing, you're, you're popping in the water, there's dolphins swimming past, it was that kind of thing. And then to come back here, uh, and you ask any, any professional, whatever sport or industry they've been in, and to then go into something new, and it's always a massive challenge because we've only ever wanted to play rugby. And myself, since a young age, you've only ever thought about it. And you get to about 30 years old and everyone says, so what are you going to do next? So what's next? Mm. And yeah, for myself, I, I've gone into the, the wine industry and the insurance business and I do a bit of media and a bit of this. Um, and it was definitely a balancing act. Um, and it took a little bit of time to get used to it. And I retired officially in kind of June time. Um, I just dislocated my shoulder three times in the last 18 months. So that was yeah. mass- a massive kind of ending. And, 
they kind of really kind of thought, you know what, that, that's a mark. And I was lucky that I played to 36. Uh, I didn't have to retire at 26 because of injury. I got to play in captain my country and the club had always loved and I've got to travel all around the world. So look, I, I can't look back with two, two kind of tough memories. But the biggest thing is, is, and what people will always say is, you can't compare it to rugby. You can't compare it to running out in front of 80,000 people mm -hmm. to playing in front of 15,000 people and the cheers go when you score a try because it's different. And unfortunately, the hardest bit is saying, look, unfortunately, that chapter of my life was brilliant, but it's over. Um, it's not to say you can't have enjoyment and success and fulfillment in other walks of life, but you can't compare it. And I think the people who, and the players who are speaking to that really struggle always try to look for that gap. Um, and look, I speak to a lot of players who are further down this path than I am, who have retired 10 years before me. And I say, how long does it take you to, to be happy and find out where you want to be? And a lot of them say kind of five to 10 years. Because mm. um, most, most people come out of university, they bounce around a bit, they try this job, try that job, it doesn't work. We're kind of doing that 15 years later, uh, when you're in a different walk of life, when you've got kids, when you've got mortgages, uh, when maybe you're a bit well known in the industry, all that kind of stuff. So, you know what? It's, it's been a balancing act for sure. Um, there have definitely been times when it's got too much for me, uh, but I'm slowly finding my feet in it now. Yeah, I think what you touched on was really interesting about that, that lifestyle transition when you went from the UK over to America and just that difference of going to the beach, having that self-care. must have been quite a nice transition to look after yourself for a bit of time, you know? It's a bit different falling out of a training session in the UK and ultimately not having that luxury. And that's a great way to have ended your career, I guess. Yeah, it was. And look, when I left Harlequins, I was 34. I was the oldest back row by eight years. I knew the younger guys were starting to make ground on me and I didn't want to be that player who had, who had been at kind of the forefront of the club for so long and kind of slipping, slipping into kind of the, the back room. Um, so I thought, you know what, I, was, I wanted to go and play a slightly easier standard, a slight experience. In, I'm very dyslexic, so somewhere where it was English speaking because mm. you speak to players who have gone to France, gone to Japan and they struggle massively with language. Unless you're in the main cities, a lot of them don't speak English. Um, so I thought that was always going to be a challenge. So yeah, we went over there. Uh, there were some positives, but there was, of course, some tough times as well. Our son was born over there in the end. Um, wow. We also lived in Vegas, which is another story. I think <laughs> we've got another podcast for that. Yeah. Um, but you know what? As a life experience goes, it, it's made me come back here with freshness because we were, we were playing in front of 1,000, 2,000 people. So you kind of get hugely used different. to that. Hugely different. And you get used to that kind of training in not top of the range standards. So you're getting used to going to different gyms and all that kind of stuff. And when you're over here, and myself, we are, you are precious. You are like, you think, oh God, I have to have the best and I have to push myself mm. to this. And everything is, is kind of a million miles an hour because if, if I'm not, the next player is, and the next player is, who will come in and take your place. So it's, you're always on the go. And over there, it just kind of allowed me to take stock and really reflect and, and look back with enjoyment, fond memories, uh, but also with a, a few to the future as well. So Headstrong is all about that mental health and well-being and obviously we're in a bit of a strange location for this episode and we're in a floristry because we're going to be making a vase of flowers so I think this is a great opportunity to invite Lucy Vale in in your lovely studio. Hi, lovely to meet you. Lovely Lucy, to meet you. thank you so much for letting Welcome. us use it. Well this is great fun, I'm going to teach you exactly how to make an amazing vase of flowers. We're so now excited. for Mother's Day you can create something fantastic or maybe not. <laughs> well, I mean, it's perfect. My mum my loves her floristry and stuff like that. She t tells me one thing about it, always do it in odd numbers. 
Is that well, true? exactly. Cleverly. Yeah, have you been getting tips already? But, but, I, but actually, no, I mean, the rest of it, I go to a florist and just say, you know, <laughs> just give me, give me something nice. <laughs> I want it to be orange or red or roses or something. Well, look, we're going to need some in serious tuition. Well, I'm speaking for myself. For I myself, as well, actually. yeah. So, Lucy, can you explain to us how to make a good vase yeah, <laughs> of flowers? Perfect. Please. Okay, so, first of all, we've got these vases, which I kind of think, you know, you could get anywhere. Um, so, I think, you know, for your mum or your wife, mm -hmm. you know, this is a good place to start. Um, so, what I always say is I would use your foliage first. And I'm going to snip off these bits because you basically want to have. Of course, you're doing Chris's vase. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll take it, it out. I'm going to take it out. Okay, but good. also, also, I think we should do a bit of a competition. Yeah, definitely. Don't you think? Okay. You know, nothing like a healthy competition. Yeah, yeah. Get a competitive spirit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You've got to yeah. get a bit of competition. Right. So it's a good way to ruin a Tuesday evening. <laughs> so what I would do with this is you basically want to create a crisscross first. So you go like that. So cross it. Okay. One that way. And you use like the lip of the bars to sort of hold it in place. Okay. And then you get another bit of foliage. So you, I actually think you probably just need... I, I always actually, when I go to a florist, get annoyed when they put too much foliage in. Really? Okay. Yeah. I'm like, I want the expensive stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. Same price, <laughs> I know. Don't buff it up with well, me. Well, you know, I want, the, I want case, a flower. In that you case, you've got to go flowers. Yeah. flowers. I'm like, this is my £30 budget, but I want all the roses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. Thing is, though, I've got to say, if you go straight in with flowers, it's going to be a bit more difficult to oh, make okay. it. So I'd, I'd do this first, mm. and then and then. How are you listening? Or, you know what, you just go for all the flowers and see what happens. Well, yeah. So basically, what I'm doing here is I just cross it mm. so one there and one there okay, cross it. it and then you can put however many flowers you want a lot of these flowers are actually what we've used from an event recently so you can literally go wild okay. um, use as many as you want right. then you know the more you use the more you can take home Perfect, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much Lucy um, and basically there's no um, you know, I always say go in with the foliage, then the big blooms, and then these smaller ones to fill in the gaps. Um, but I actually don't want to give you guys I know, too I much you were doing advice. That. All right. I just think, let's see what happens. That's it. <laughs> so good luck. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. No worries. Well, I'm going to take, take this out. out. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Right. Perfect. All it's right. all yours. Are you ready? Thank you, yes. Do you and Camilla have flowers at home? Uh, sometimes. Are you romantic? I, um, no, I'm probably not as romantic as I'd like to be, or think I am. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I get flowers every now and then. Right. I think it's, it's a nice little surprise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and normally, I, when we used to live in Wandsworth, we had a place literally by the station as you kind of came out. So next to my hairdresser as well. So I'd always pop in there and had a nice relationship with them. They do me a good deal. Yeah, yeah, so. absolutely. You, you always get brownie points going home to the mother or the the partner with flowers. <laughs> it's always always a good bet. What? The reason we're doing this, of course, is because, you know, it's good for the mental health and it's kind of what I'm trying to call therapeutic, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm, feel, I'm hoping this isn't going to be too stressful <laughs> with this healthy competition mm -hmm. that we've got going. I mean, but what I really want to talk about is going back to your childhood, if we can, first and foremost, because you, you've been dealt your fair share of challenges in your life, it's fair to say. And I mean, you experienced the loss of a parent very, very young. And, and going through that trauma can be immensely challenging. So, how old were you when you very sadly lost your, one of your parents? Sorry. Um, yeah, look, it was, it was hugely tough. I was, uh, I was five years old. Um, 
My older brother was seven, my little one was three. Um, and yeah, my father died of a heart attack suddenly at the age of 40. My mum was actually away with my little brother at the time. Um, so yeah, look, it, it was devastating and kind of, um, as a young boy, you don't really know how to deal with it. You know, everyone's sad and all that kind of stuff, but you don't really understand. And I was definitely that. I was, I was quite angry and frustrated and probably didn't know how to deal with it in the best possible way. Mm. Um, which was extremely tough and channel, sport was a massive channel for me in terms of allowing me to get out that kind of aggression in the right way and tying me out and giving me control and structure and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, look, it, it was horrendous. Um, and you see, you see young kids who lose parents now and it's extremely tough. I'm so grateful for everything my mum did for me and my brothers to give us the opportunities we have had um, and to try and repay her like that. But no, it was, um, yeah, it was a tough time for sure. I've, uh, I've spoken to Andrew Strauss quite a lot, and obviously he runs the Ruth Strauss Foundation, and I think just from a, a grief perspective and preparing someone for the loss of a parent, that's amazing. And at the age of five, I, as you say, you probably didn't quite fully understand, and it's so difficult to comprehend those emotions. But on the second part of that, it's probably where your first, subconsciously, you didn't realize your first team came from, is that you're bringing your family together and uniting in such a way that you could support each other, you know? Yeah, I, th I think so. And like you said, you, you speak to, to Andrew and stuff and his kids at a different age and, mm. and other people. And I think it affects it all, all children differently because they're, especially at such a young age, all mm. in such a different developmental stage. Whereas my older brother probably understood it a bit more. My little brother probably didn't because he was a bit too young. And I was kind of that kind of middle ground, mm. uh, which was extremely tough. And, and then it's just being there for each other. and. A lot of time your, your parents try to put on a brave face because they don't want to see you, you were sad. And my mum was definitely trying to do that and, and soak up this sadness and, and other people in the family. My uncle was incredible, my aunt and all those people who really kind of rallied around our family um, and friends as well were, were brilliant at that, that kind of stage of life. And it shows how important others are as well because you can't, if you're left to, you will just wallow and stuff. And you do need to get up at some point, but you need other people to help you up as well. How are you with kind of expressing your own emotion? Not great, um, in all honesty. And look, whenever I've suffered, whether it be trauma and, and speaking about my dad like that, or setbacks in rugby, relationship bits and bobs, are not brilliant, in all honesty. Having a son has made me a lot more open. Empathetic? Um, yeah, definitely. And I kind of wish when I'd played, I'd probably been a little bit more emotional, where I was very pragmatic mm. with it. And I thought that was kind of the best way of dealing with it. And having a little boy, um, Things do change. Things do change massively. And I watch a film now, a, a soppy film or whatever. I love a rom-com and all that stuff. And I, <laughs> I feel like I get a bit teary. Whereas before, I, would, I wouldn't kind of bat an eyelid. Um, I remember we went to, uh, a long time ago, we went to Las Vegas with a kind of a, a boys trip, postseason, and all that kind of stuff when we were younger. I'm watching Marley and Me. Yeah, and oh, I was, well, who wouldn't cry and I was, uh, I was on, on the plane to Vegas and everyone was talking about kind of, oh, we're going to go out and have an amazing time and drink and have fun and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. I was tearing up on the plane and I was like, this isn't really the, the lad's holiday I'd anticipated. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you talk about starting a family, did that change how you kind of perceived others and, or, and were protective of your child and kind of family? Because dealing with people, as you say, being pragmatic as a captain and an individual, but then that gave you that potential, not exposure as such, but opened up a different side to your emotions? Yeah, definitely. Um, and look, with England, you're away a lot. 
you're away mm. a lot. You're in, you're in camp for probably four or five months of the year. Yeah. And there are definitely, definitely players we hear of, like Jay Marler, who have given up on international at certain points because they want to spend time with the family. And at a time, it was, it was just me and Camilla. And I think when it's kind of two of you, you're a bit stronger like that. And I probably didn't appreciate how much of a struggle it was for the guys who did have kids. Yeah. who were away for those long periods of time, potentially not going home for a couple of weeks at a time, yeah. um, seeing their kids kind of the odd Sunday after a game for a couple of hours, and then they were kind of going home. Um, and I probably didn't really appreciate that and what that was, was like on the players. Um, but in reflection, these are the kind of things you look back on your career and think, yeah, I could have done this differently or, or learned from this situation. How important was sport for you growing up then, in terms of what that gave to you? Because we've talked, you said that you were dyslexic at school. And so was that a form of escape or was it just where you felt comfortable? No, it was my escape. All sport was, I was, I was very a sport as a kid. I wanted to play any sport possible. Um, and I did, like I, like I said, I was dyslexic and I'd do extra classes and break times and after school and all that kind of stuff. And sport was a place that I got confidence. Mm. It gave me that kind of friends and social abilities and it was something I was good at. So it allowed me to go back into the classroom and work that a little bit harder because all of a sudden I had a bit more confidence and all that. So that was huge. And, and then kind of as I got a bit older, got a little bit better, it became a bit more and more. Um, so it has always been this game. Even in good times, tough times, for me, I've always wanted to be on a pitch. As I got older and bigger, rugby was, was that pitch. Mm. And I always say, like, when you're, when you're a kid, you only ever want to play rugby. For England, you want to play in the big stadiums against the best sides in the world. What you real, don't realise is when you do that, you have media, you have appearances, you have sponsors, you have the old guard, all that kind of stuff that you have to go and see. But when you play at Twickenham for 100 minutes, you get to live out that fantasy, that incredible moment. That's what you live for, right? Because five minutes after that or less, a minute after that, you have a camera in your face, you then have to do your recovery, you then have to go see the sponsors, you might see your family, then you have to go to... Um, a do and all that kind of stuff and it all kind of adds up and the wheel starts again and it's recovery and it just goes but for those 100 minutes you get to do what you love um, and for me that was that was the escape and though you get to do some incredible things like I said it's taken me all around the world had amazing experiences on and off the field um, but you always want more you always want more and you look back and whoever can bottle that feeling to say you know what you'll have that feeling of running out in front of 80,000 people and singing a national anthem it's um, it really is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And what would you give up to do it one more time? Shoulder, no, in, no shoulder injuries. <laughs> Maybe my uh, floor skills. Yeah, my bouquet. <laughs> my bouquet could go. Um, but look, that, I mean, that is, you would give a lot up, to be honest. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, what, what, to someone who's never had that opportunity, because let's be honest, it happens to a finite amount of people. What can you compare it to? That emotion, that feeling of standing there singing that national anthem, you, as a captain, mm representing your country but you are the beacon of you know rugby hope dare I say you know what I mean yeah I remember kind of Jason Leonard kind of we used to have players come in former players come in and speak to us Jason Leonard one of England's most capped men yeah um, and speak to us the night before game present our shirts all that kind of stuff and he literally said you represent every player every rugby player in England's aspiring dreams mm. and it so it true. is and, w and when you have that feeling it's like wow I mean, you've got, to, you've got to try and relax after that because you've got another 16 I mean, hours and you have to try and sleep and all that stuff, but you do. Yeah. And it is, it's absolutely incredible to, to have those moments and you can't, you can't take them lightly. Yeah, no, I completely agree. But also the other thing is if you overthink it 
that's when you play badly and that's when you're not in the moment. And one of my first games for Harlequins, I remember I was playing with legends of the game, Andrew Mertens and mm. Green, Will Greenwood and Andre Voss, all international players. And I was terrible. It's one of the worst games I've ever had. I was always looking around and saying, oh my God, Andrew Mertens just passed me the ball. And Will Groom is kind of just rucking over me now. Um, and all that kind of stuff. And you just got to be in the moment. Once that initial feeling was over, I was like, okay, never again. You just got to be in the moment. I mean, captaincy found you at a young age. And I'm intrigued to know what that does in terms of putting even more pressure on you. Because you've already got a high intensity job as a rugby player. You've got people looking at you and you've got to perform at that highest level. And then you're given this extra responsibility of you're representing the team, you're giving team talks, you're talking to the manager up about picking the squad. You get all that added pressure. And at such a young age, that can take its toll, surely? Yeah, it can do. And it was, um, there were definitely times where I, I did think that. And potentially times I think, you know what, would I have played a little bit more if I hadn't been captain? But the opportunity to captain your country and lead the, yeah. lead the team out is, it can't be beaten. It was, it, it was incredible. And, Look, I captained Harlequins at the age of 23, England on my second appearance at the age of 25. And it was, yeah, very much learning on the job, very much kind of yeah. like, what can we do? And, but again, it was surrounding yourself with good people. And I think with, with any walk of leadership, with any captaincy, you need good people around you because you can't do it individually. Mm. It can, leadership can be a lonely place. There are times when early on in my career, I would have to sit down mates and basically say, look, what the hell were you doing? You were, this was terrible, this was out of character, all that kind of stuff. And you know they would go to your mates and slag you off yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And did you find that difficult? Early on in my, my career, I did. I remember like, the first time I had to do it, kind of really plucking up the courage and I delayed it a day. Did you feel anxious day. before going to do it? I would. Now I wouldn't. Now I would happily say, look, you let us down, whatever, and I'll just do it there and then. I wouldn't think about it. And it might give you, a, if it's a mate, it might, upset you for a second but then you kind of move forward but then that's taken experience and I remember when I was a young captain at 23 and I captained Quinns again at about 32 and I captained differently but also players were different early on it was very much stick orientated and every punishment was fitness and it was almost like okay if you made that mistake or you gave those penalties away or you were late for training you watched and everyone else did fitness so it was that kind of mental strain on the players and stuff which again now is, is so far from what the game is, it's, it's helping each other and speaking openly and saying, okay, why are you letting down? What's wrong? What's, you're not understanding the message. And treating the person more than just treating a rugby generic player. Yeah, but you've also got to disassociate yourself. As you say, if it's a friend, you can't be like, oh, I'm going in there, I can't be soft on them. Ultimately, it is your job as the captain. You know, you're just fulfilling your responsibilities. Yeah, and look, there was, there was definitely that early on. Um, and like I said, it, it can be lonely and that's why you need good people to support you as well. Um, because unfortunately, like you said, it, it, it can be tough and you go away sometimes and when you know the guys are going to go out for beers, sometimes you have a beer and then you disappear because you, yeah. you have to. The and disco dummy. The disco dummy, the smoke bomb. Um, <laughs> but, and, and stuff like that is, is important, but then also you need to be part of it. Yeah. You need to be part of it because you need to have that connection with the team because you need to say a message that they can buy into and they can believe. Mm. and and challenge themselves with. This episode is sponsored by Ascot Group. Ascot Group is a preeminent speciality insurance and reinsurance group with a record of underwriting excellence and superior claims service. Founded in 2001, the company provides a broad range of underwriting solutions to customers worldwide through its platforms in London, Bermuda and the United States. 
Ascot Group are proud to support Headstrong, which focuses on the psychological well-being challenges that arise from professional sport. Check Ascot Group out at ascotgroup.com. So, I mean, something that you and I were both very fortunate about were where we went to school. I mean, in terms of the facilities that we were given and the luxuries of what, that, what happens there. But what I want to know is where that inspiration came from for, you know, um, your foundation. Because what the work you're doing is giving these disadvantaged children an opportunity to experience what you and I did. So where did that inspiration come from with you and your wife? Yeah, so the Curdler Robshire Foundation has been one of those things we've wanted to set up for a while. Yeah. Uh, we've wanted to set up a foundation. We've wanted to help underprivileged kids and people from tough economic backgrounds have yeah. the same opportunities that we sh should all have. Mm. Uh, but unfo unfortunately, especially in the tough moments, it's, it's hard for a lot of people. And look, like you said, we were very lucky. We went to nice schools, all that kind of stuff, had a fantastic opportunities. Um, but it's about using sport and music for the better and helping people evolve, whether that be with grants, whether that be through kind of um, trauma recovery, like it has done for me. Mm. Um, and look, I'd have, I heard a fantastic saying, which was, I listened to a lot of podcasts. I, headstrong, I Headstrong, exactly. And I think, it, <laughs> I think it may have been on your podcast, actually. Um, and it said, look, when's the best time to plant a tree? Mm. And the answer is 20 years ago. I was like, okay, when's the second best time to plant a tree? today and we thought you know what in a year's time we'll be saying we should have done this should have done that and we thought let's just do it let's get on with it and do it we might not have it all right straight away it might be a learning curve it might be two steps forward one step back but we started and we pulled the pin and we're going to start helping people and that was the biggest thing that people said to me and Camilla like oh why another foundation why another charity and the answer is because you can always help someone and so for us it's, it's very much about that it's very much about, look, rugby's been fantastic to me and music's been brilliant to Camilla. And we're in a, Camilla's kind of retraining for the operatic and I'm in a very different walk of life from where I was playing. And I have more time, I have a different way of thinking to how I thought when I was professional and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, look, you, you want to help others now more. I've got to ask, do you, uh, do you sing? Or are you uh, a musician in any, any, any way? Not on a camera, that's for sure. <laughs> I was close, <laughs> nearly got it. You know what, but like I, um, I bought a guitar years ago when yeah. I was, oh, I don't know, late teens, all that kind of stuff. You think, you think, you know what, if I could play a guitar, I'd be pretty cool. Um, and then I went and had a couple of lessons, I, I was terrible. And then I, I, I remember I saw a friend who was in a band, but he was, he was so terrible at sport, he was like terrible at sport, but he was, mm. in, he was in a band, I think they did quite well in the end. Um, and I saw him, I said, oh, I'm learning the guitar. He's like, how are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not, not very well. And he said, well, it's like me trying to play sport. And I pictured him trying to play sport. And I thought, you know what? Right? He would be terrible at it. And I thought, you know what? That's going to be me. That's me in his industry. And literally that moment killed it. Um, but no, like, I'm, I'm not a great singer. I'm very tone deaf. Um, whenever I sing next to Camilla or... Or whenever Turn I sing down, down the national anthems come and the camera's in your face, you have to mind because you don't want to sing too loudly. Yeah. Um, but no, like I, I enjoy music. It's, it's always one of those things, you go to a concert and every time I leave a concert, I think, I wish I did that more. Yeah, right. You come out and it's an amazing feeling, no matter who you're seeing or what you're doing. Um, well, I guess it's what, like what we're doing here, it's, one of the, it's, like, it's therapeutic. Mm. I know because I'm, I'm rubbish at music as well, mm. but I will happily go sit at a piano for half an hour and I'll just forget about anything that's going on because yeah. I'm so 
all that matters right now is the piano and what I'm doing. Mm. Do you know what I mean? We, we need an escape. Yeah, and what exactly. it is, and a piano is for you. I, I, we've got a little dog, take the dog for a walk. Yeah. Uh, we used to live near Richmond Park. So just go in there, leave your phone in the car, um, and just walk and, and kind of be, be kind of away from it all. Yeah. And then, of course, you come back and the world keeps going, doesn't it? But it's important to have those moments. Well, I think that's why it's so good with the foundation, giving those kids the opportunity to ultimately find their identity because there's that opportunity to... He's going for a big one. Yeah, I know. This is, this this is a mistake. This is now you're going to the... Uh, that's the extreme level. Um, no, but it gives that great opportunity to the children to do something that ultimately they might not realise how good they are at something, you know? And also finding their identity because I know when I was at school, for example, as an actor, my group of friends I found through drama. Hmm. You found your group of friends through rugby. People find it through music. So it's actually that extra level. It's not just the, the foundation. It's not just about the sport. It's about building relationships and friendships. Well, exactly. And my best friends are, are still people I've played with, whether that be as a young, young boy to, through to a man. Um, but it's also having that connection with your parents. And for, mm. for one of the projects we're supporting is a women's refuge in Surrey where we're supplying Joe Wick style P lessons for the kids and the mums to, to have and work out together and train and have those moments. But also we're supporting the London Youth Choir where we're not only sponsoring some of the kids, we're paying the mothers who normally couldn't take time off work their hourly wage so they can go and watch their kids perform and sing because that's important because you want those, you want those moments. I mean, as a kid, you think when your parents are watching and you score a goal or score a try or something like that, you're celebrating. And even when you're eight, like a bit older, my parents have, or my mum has, has followed me to a lot of places. And you always know when your friends are in the crowd and all that kind of stuff, because subconsciously it, it means a lot to you. Um, and I'm sure I'll get to that stage with, with my son when he's a bit bigger and embarrass him on the side. I'll have to, yeah, be that be that person. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't want to like. If he wants to play rugby, it's, it's great. But I'm not going to be that person. No pressure on. No. If, like I said, if he, he's he's a big he's a big boy, um, <laughs> so I'm sure he'll probably find it. Find um, his way. But again, whatever he wants to do. Um, hopefully, from my point of view, he can play golf. Tennis, there's more money in it, so it's a, <laughs> a better lifestyle, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And, but those, those solo sports are tough. Um, what, so what, but what can we do, let's say, as members of the public, what can we do to support the foundation? Yep, so obviously everything's on our, sorry, on our website and all that. So the KurzlakeRobshireFoundation.com is our website. Myself and Camilla are actually running the London Marathon. Um, I, I don't know why we're doing that, but that's my competitive juices, wanting to do something and wanting to... Yeah, stay, stay competing and stuff. Mm. So any kind of support in that, we're looking to do fundraisers throughout the year. Um, and it's very much a learning curve for us as well. We've taken a lady on to work a day a week for us, but amazing. what I've been really amazed with is the outreach we've had and people wanting to support because people do care. And it's, like I said, it's, it's very strongly towards myself and Camilla with the music and sport. And we said, as long as we stick to those pillars, we can go in any way. So if you know someone who might need a hand or might need a bit of funding or a grant here and there, we, we want to help. And yeah. look, you, you can't help everyone, but you can definitely help some. And, and that's definitely our, our process to try and evolve. And, and hopefully in a year, like, sorry, in 10 years, we want to raise a million pounds. And that, yeah. that's our goal. And look, we're, we're only year one, uh, but you've, you've got to shoot for the stars and, yeah. and hopefully you hit some on the way. Well, right? Exactly, yeah. And, Look, for me, I need a challenge. I'm competitive, and yeah, I, yeah. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that person yeah, who's, yeah, yeah. who's racing his kid and trying to beat his kid at basketball or anything like that, yeah. or handing him off in rugby in the garden or in the park and stuff like that. But you've got you've got to have other other things that get you out of bed in the morning, and this is definitely helping. 
I just realised we can use these as well. Oh, we can use a game changer. Them. I'm gonna, I'm gonna scout. I'm just thinking, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to say, it's, it's not I, looking good. If I went to a florist, anyway. you got to give them that. <laughs> £35 for that, I think I might have to have to give it back. <laughs> yeah, this it's is like, good. A, can I blame my tools? Uh, we're going to. But these are beautiful oh, flowers, I'll, I'll I won't lie. These. No, exactly. Absolutely yeah. gorgeous. Um, something I really want to ask you is is vulnerability in sport a strength or a weakness? Uh, it's it's a strength. I think it's I think because I I, I I what I guess there's two parts to that question is because rugby has that perception of being a manly sport, right? And I know of course there's you know the female game is growing at an exponential rate, but there's always this bravado around rugby and being manly and masculine. But ultimately, you know the work that I've done as well with the RPA and Restart Rugby. Some rugby players are some of the most vulnerable people, vulnerable people I know. Yeah, and look, when I've, when I've been through tough moments and World Cups and all that kind of stuff, I definitely haven't dealt with it in the right way. Um, in terms of that bravado where you kind of bottle it all up and unfortunately the other people pick up the pieces. And Camilla was obviously fantastic in those extremely tough times and my friends and people reached out. But at the end of the day, I didn't show that vulnerability and it came out in different ways and it came out in the wrong ways. Whereas I think now, it is a lot more open and it is a lot more acceptable to say, you know what, I am struggling or I am. That bravado image of it is starting to disappear and it is good. And, and we actually have someone at Harlequins before I left to do everything bar rugby. So again, it's how are you? Are you settling in okay? Is your family okay? What can I help with? But also we will have sessions in the week, or not in the week, probably once every two months where we'd sit down on the table and look, you would sit with people. I wouldn't expect one of the young 18 year olds to come and speak to me and share their feelings about what's happened with their, their partner at home and all that kind of stuff. But I'd expect people my age and stuff and myself to share with them. And I'll say, okay, there'll be a couple of topics. So like, is anything affecting you? Um, what can we do to help? Um, anything you want to confine it, all those kind of stuff. So it's, but again, you have to be open and brave enough to share them. And I think that's what we're mm. starting to see, which previously I don't think we were. I think previously we were just, again, keep it all, yeah, all fine, good, how are you, great, yeah, on we go. Um, and nothing a bit deeper. So still saying you can, you can take the horse to water, but the horse has to be willing to drink. Yeah. Um, so again, you can be there and help each other and ask each other to go for a coffee or a tea or water or walk, whatever it be. Um, but you have to be willing as well. And that's something I've learned, which I wasn't in my tough times um, good at. Mm. and people were there for me but I wasn't willing to whereas now you look at yourself in reflection hindsight's a wonderful thing isn't it and if you had this head when you were 18 and all that kind of stuff for the world would be different but we don't yeah. and you have to go through those kind of tough times you have to learn about yourself and you've got to help others once you've learned so if I can ask you about those tough times so and I'm notably thinking about a post world cup right with that hindsight that you talk about then in your hindsight honest opinion do you think that you needed to go to therapy after that yeah, Do you for think sure. that would have helped yeah. and benefited your recovery almost? Yeah, definitely, because I think I think like I put a huge amount of pressure on, on Camilla to kind of pick up the pieces and stuff. And I, I went home and kind of drew, drew the curtains and shut the, shut the doors. Mm. It was that, that type of thing, which I, I shouldn't have done. Um, I should have been a lot more open. I should have shared a lot. Um, but again, it was a probably a bravado thing in all honesty and, and knowing how to deal with things. And did you get things right? No. Um, but again, it's being open to actually say, yeah, I, I could have done therapy. I could have spoken to someone. 
rather than putting extra pressure on your on your partner and stuff like that. So yeah, look, if you if you have things now and you you hear about people out there now and there's a lot of sports psychology and I wasn't a big one for sports psychologists because I always wanted to hear from people who had been in the arena and done it. I didn't want to speak to someone who had just learned from a book, who had just done exams and all. I wanted to, and there were a lot of people, Barker Miller, a lot of people who reached out to me were like former captains and all that kind of stuff. Who, 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 who reached out? So like Sean Fitzpatrick, I remember waking up after the World Cup and said, look, nothing, and he wrote me an email and said, look, nothing anyone can do or say is gonna make you feel better but a sun will come up again. It might not be tomorrow, it might not be next week, it might not even be next month, but it will come up again and you will be okay. And there's some things you just need time and other people like Alice Kirk and Kevin Sinfield and all these kind of greats who had been in effect because your mates didn't really know what it was like to be written on the front and back of papers. They would always say, oh, you'll be fine, you're okay. But they didn't really know what it was like. Um, How do you cope with that spotlight then? Because we're talking about the press there and they can be a vicious... Yeah, yeah, they can. Being, they but can. also, they can be your best friend when it's going well. So it's a difficult relationship. Yeah, look, they, they can they can be horrible. Um, in all honesty, and they are very much they want to build you up and knock you down. And but prime example of this is uh, Ben Stokes. Yeah. Ben Stokes, obviously, he was uh, England's incredible cricket, or still is England's incredible cricketer. Uh, pretty much won the twenty. Uh, was it the the World Cup, I can't remember, it was 20 or 50 over. Yeah, um, then he had that incredible series at Headingley where he basically won the Ashes or drew the Ashes and saved England and all that kind of stuff. A week later, he's at the top of everything you can imagine. Like, And then the son, unfortunately, wrote that horrible piece about his family and the history and all that kind of stuff. And mm. just, just there was no need for it. And it's like, why not just let him have these incredible moments and really enjoy it and be behind him and I'm, I'm glad that a lot of people and a lot of the media turned on on that that paper in particular because it was a horrible thing to do um, but I think with it your your shoulders get broader and your skin gets a little bit thicker and it does hurt and it does hurt and it, it's a strange thing because when you're going through these situations you feel like you're in a fog mm. and you feel like everyone's looking at you and you can't see clear um, and then just over time the fog just slowly clears a little bit and and you realize life goes on and People aren't looking at you. People are caring about their own business and their own life, but in your own head, you're kind of overplaying it. But yeah, look, it, it is tough. It's, it's never nice when you're in these situations, no matter how many times you've been through. But again, it's about now reaching out to other players and say, you know, what, I've done this. Let's go for a coffee. Let's have a tea. Have you, so have you reached out to any of, say, the current England team before and said, yeah, look, I let have, me put yeah. my shoulder around yeah, you? Yeah, I have. And, and just said, look, let's, let's go have a chat because you know what it's like. Um, and I don't want to go into names and stuff, but no, when, 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 when those moments are there, and I'm grateful that people were there for me, uh, and I'll be forever grateful for that, and it's now trying to help, help that next generation come through it, so hopefully it softens that blow. I mean, that's your empathy side of it. What's that infrastructural side of it from, you know, um, England rugby like? Where's that support now? Because back in 2015, it, by the sounds of things, yes, there was that infrastructure, but I imagine now it's even better, eight years on. Yeah, look, it's, it's tough because when you're in England, everything is England. You're there for two months and you eat, sleep, train, do that constantly every night, a couple of days off here and there. But then you, at the end of the tournament, it's either great, you've won it or not. You go back to your club, you drop your England bag off, do your washing, get your Quinn's bag and off to the club, you go the next day. And it's, it's, it is quite separate. Mm. Um, and then they kind of, sometimes the clubs pick up the pieces a little bit, like the mental side of it in particular. 
Um, because again, you're the big players going back to the club and a club want, they've been paying you and yeah. you, you all would be paid well. Um, and then when you're straight back out there delivering and especially when I was captain of both England and Quinns and you were captain of England dealing with that and the first day back, you're captain of your club again and you're straight into it and you're like, just almost need a couple of days to get back into it. And the really good coaches have almost said, come in on a Thursday. Look, you generally train Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, Friday into a game. So some coaches have been like, you know what, have the beginning of the week off, just mentally, even mm. just one day, just to get yourself back into family life, back into living at home and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was always important to, to learn from those coaches as well, as well as the coaches that kind of make you work hard and, and do that. Yeah, I mean, I've heard you talk about straight after that, uh, the World Cup, where you went back to your hotel room with, your, with Camilla and you cried into her arms and you guys shared that moment. I wanted to ask you, when was the last time that you cried? Um, my uncle actually passed pre-Christmas. Um, so that was, that was probably the last time I cried. I'm yeah. sorry to hear that. No, thank you. Yeah, look, it was, um, it was one of those ones where we thought we'd got over cancer. And then just, yeah, one night, we had a big do three nights before. Sort of saw him look fine. And then unfortunately, three days later, he yeah, died of a heart attack. Um, so, so yeah, that so was pretty tough. Yeah. But how important is that family then? for you in terms of that supportive network because you've just talked about it as a team, mm. which is ultimately your family. But you might, you've learned that from your own losses in your own life. Yeah, it is. And like I said, he, he was brilliant for us when my father passed and gave us that kind of, that, that man side of things with my aunt. And I had a lot of, lot of strong women in my life and my grandma was an extremely strong woman and my mum and my aunt and stuff. And, and he was a very, he was brilliant for us and really kind of stepping up when we needed him. So look, it was, um, it was tough and it's about being there and you want to have those good relationships with your kids, don't you? And as they, as they grow up, get a little bit bigger, you get to share a bit more, um, but you want to give them those good foundations so that they're strong mentally and, and physically um, and can live hopefully a nicer life than you have. Look, I've, had a, I've had a great life so far and hopefully it will continue for a long way. Um, but you always want more for your kids, don't you? Of course. Um, you want to have those good family bonds. Um, well, look, I know, I know how difficult it is talk about grief and death it's a very you know there's a ultimately still a taboo about that so mm. I appreciate you you know showing your emotion and feelings mm. I bet it's taken a while to be able to share your emotions in general as you said earlier it's difficult to share that yeah look it is um, and let me, you always get a bit kind of conscious of crying I remember look, after the World Cup we played Wales we played Wales first came back at Twickenham obviously the team that knocked us out and there was all, all in the week it had been about revenge and talk and all that and I was doing a lap mm. of honour and as I was doing a lap of honour, we won the game. Brilliant. I just broke down in tears. I just broke down in tears. And I couldn't stop. And I just had to get in a change room. I couldn't. I didn't want people to see me. Had to get in a change room. And all the players kind of came up to me and told me I couldn't stop crying for about 15 minutes. Um, and I just said, look, we didn't realise how much it affected you. Um, and again, that, that's on me, but not being open, not sharing stuff, which we have to do more now. And I think stuff like brilliant stuff like the podcast you guys are doing, um, and hoping everyone's listening and, and other players are starting to do and starting to be more vocal and the world's a more open place, I think, and, it, and it's brilliant and we need to help people in those tough times. Because look, we all have tough times. Yeah. Um, some, are, some are more open with it. And I think the biggest thing about that is and what, what really kind of showed me and I speak about these other kind of leaders that kind of reached out to me and they didn't have to do that. And for me, that's the best form of leadership. So I think if you see someone suffering, don't wait for their partner to see them. Don't wait for their boss to see them. You be the one to say, you know what, let's, let's go for a walk. Let's go get a, a smoothie or whatever it be. Um, take ownership. 
take ownership because that for me is yeah, the best leadership I've ever seen in my life. Um, and now it's about trying to do that for other people. So yeah, if, if you are listening, you think someone's struggling, um, see if they're okay, but then it's down to them. Then again, they have to take that responsibility take that respons yeah, exactly. and say, yeah, okay, let, let's go and have a chat. And it might just be sitting down with someone else and just having five minutes or completely letting everything out. But at least you've done your part with that as well. What I really enjoy about speaking to people like you and doing this podcast, I'm really lucky to do it, but what I always find is I build this safe space with somebody and we actually have a really authentic, genuine conversation and talking about things that are genuinely meaningful mm. uh, and deep. And there, I don't want to say that it's like therapy as such, but it's like, you know, it's, it's calming. You know what mm. I mean? So it's a really nice atmosphere. Yeah, look, I, I think listening to podcasts like these, I listen to a lot of podcasts, sports stuff, all that. Um, and I think I'll read autobiographies and stuff. Mm. And I always think if you can learn one thing from it, it's been a success. But then whatever it is, put it into your mold. Because I, I, was, I was a young captain, I would learn things from the legends of the game and the players I thought you had to be. I thought, you're Martin Johnson, you have to be that type of captain. Or, mm. But it's not, you've got to learn it and put it into your own mold. And, and, and stuff like this is, you generally take one or two things away, so take them, but do it in your way. Because I remember trying things and being laughed out of room because it wasn't authentic. And, but I remember trying other things and being like, you know what, I really resonated with a lot of the players. So again, yeah, learn, evolve, and continue to grow, you know, continue to push yourself, because the, the hardest thing is to keep putting yourself out of your comfort zone. And for me, I remember as a kid, one of the scariest things I ever thought, or not ever thought, but the toughest thing was as a kid in class, you would have to read a line in, in the paragraph, you have to stand up and read it, the next sentence, the next person would have to read it, and it would go around the classroom and keep going until you, you finish the chapter or whatever it was. And that was one of my biggest fears. And then I went to a Christmas do, uh, a nativity and carol concert, all that kind of stuff. And I was reading biblical stuff, which again, is it's pretty Shakespearean. It's quite yeah. hard to read. It's not, uh, and I'm not particularly religious. And, and reading this, I was in between Olivia Coleman, Dawn French, Charles Dance, Ian Hislop, these type of people who are professional. And if I could have said, you know what, as a kid, in 30 years time, you're gonna be reading alongside incredible yeah. world-class actors who are paid to deliver a line. I would have been like, nah, never. But it's baby steps, every step away, and that's because I'm grateful for the teachers who, as a shy, little dyslexic kid, introverted, continue to push me, extrovert, which I hated at the time. But 30 years on, all those little steps and those little dominoes add up to something big. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Chris, I really enjoyed this. Before we present our vases, I've got one final question I ask every guest, and that is, what does the word headstrong mean to you? Yeah, it's um, a tough question because it will mean a lot to different people. For me, I think a lot of the things are having resilience, um, having resilience, but, but also having good people around you because no one's ever gone a long way or got back up by themselves. As much as people tell you they made it to the top on their own or they did this on their own and they pulled themselves out of this, I'm sure they did a lot of it, but there was people to give you a hand along the way and, and reach out. And, and I don't think anything's smooth sailing. Playing international sport is definitely a roller coaster. You have incredible highs, but some pretty deep, dark lows as well. Um, and you need to be kind of strong enough to wallow, sulk, have your moment, but then think, yeah, enough's 
people have reached out to me and you know what it's time to get back on a horse and get back out there so I think resilience has always been a key bit and it, it's not to say you can't have tough moments and bad moments and sulks along the way and close the curtains but there comes a time when you yeah you have to get back out there absolutely right should we get Lucy back in Let's do it, yeah. I'm, I'm not confident. You're not happy. But I think, what I, think I can my, say is... My flowers have died on the way. What I can say is it's, an enjoy, it's been very enjoyable. It has been, it's yeah. Like I said, my first, my first ever flower arranging... Can I call it a class? Yeah, we'll call it a class. Lucy, hello. Come hello. in. Right. Oh, my God, look at that. There we go. Do you know what, guys? I think that's actually pretty good. Oh. Only thing I'd say is that I wouldn't have the leaves and the water, but apart from that... Mm. Pretty good. You know what? what I, w I want to say mine is better, but it's not. <laughs> and, it really, uh, and it really annoys me. You You've definitely done this before. Oh, well, yeah. I came in with Lucy yesterday, uh, Did, yeah. last week. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those practices. You know, this is a setup. I've been like punk or something. Yeah, yeah. Anton Deck, come out. Yeah. Um, you should have pumped it full with more flowers. I would have thought you were going flower. I thought you did say you were going flower heavy. I know, but I didn't want to overdo it. And look, my flowers, these, there's <laughs> no limp. kind of structure to them, is there? I need to kind of, I need Tuck to put them in. in like that. Hey, Lucy, uh, thank you so much for letting us use your workshop. No yeah, no, thank you. It's we loved brilliant. it. And I tell you what, I feel relaxed. Well, I'm not going to lie. I, and Chris, Chris feel now feels stressed. stressed. I, I, do, I do feel stressed, actually, now. I must admit, I feel a, a bit let down. <laughs> it shows a skill that people like yourself have, because it's... It is a skill. It's, it's, a bit it's something hard to learn. Yeah, you think <laughs> you can just throw this God. together and that? You well, there we go. We've all got our own skills. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Lucy, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Oh, no thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Done. That's a wrap. This episode is sponsored by Ascot Group. Ascot Group is a preeminent speciality insurance and reinsurance group with a record of underwriting excellence and superior claims service. Founded in 2001, the company provides a broad range of underwriting solutions to customers worldwide through its platforms in London, Bermuda and the United States. Ascot Group are proud to support Headstrong, which focuses on the psychological well-being challenges that arise from professional sport. Check Ascot Group out at ascotgroup.com. 